Section 24 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901-1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joanne Turner. Theodore Roosevelt, December 3rd, 1906, Part 5. I have just returned from a trip to Panama, and shall report to you at length later on the whole subject of the Panama Canal. The Algeciras Convention, which was signed by the United States as well as by most of the powers of Europe, supersedes the previous convention of 1880, which was also signed both by the United States and a majority of the European powers. This treaty confers upon us equal commercial rights with all European countries and does not entail a single obligation of any kind upon us, and I earnestly hope it may be speedily ratified. To refuse to ratify it would merely mean that we forfeited our commercial rights in Morocco and would not achieve another object of any kind. In the event of such refusal, we would be left for the first time in a hundred and twenty years without any commercial treaty with Morocco, and this at a time when we are everywhere seeking new markets and outlets for trade. The destruction of the Pribilof Islands fur seals by pelagic sealing still continues. The herd, which according to the surveys made in 1874 by direction of the Congress, numbered 4,700,000, and which, according to the survey of both American and Canadian commissioners in 1891, amounted to 1 million, has now been reduced to about 180,000. This result has been brought about by Canadian and some other sealing vessels killing the female seals while in the water during their annual pilgrimage to and from the south or in search of food. As a rule, the female seal when killed is pregnant and also has an unweaned pup on land, so that for each skin taken by pelagic sealing, as a rule, three lives are destroyed, the mother, the unborn offspring, and the nursing pup which is left to starve to death. No damage whatever is done to the herd by the carefully regulated killing on land. The custom of pelagic sealing is solely responsible for all of the present evil, and is alike indefensible from the economic standpoint and from the standpoint of humanity. In 1896, over 16,000 young seals were found dead from starvation on the Pribilof Islands. In 1897, it was estimated that since pelagic sealing began, upward of 400,000 adult female seals had been killed at sea, and over 300,000 young seals had died of starvation as the result. The revolting barbarity of such a practice, as well as the wasteful destruction which it involves, needs no demonstration and is its own condemnation. The Bering Sea Tribunal, which sat in Paris in 1893, 
and which decided against the claims of the United States to exclusive jurisdiction in the waters of Bering Sea and to a property right in the fur seals when outside of the three-mile limit, determined also upon certain regulations which the tribunal considered sufficient for the proper protection and preservation of the fur seal in, or habitually resorting to, the Bering Sea. The tribunal, by its regulations, established a close season, from the 1st of May to the 31st of July, and excluded all killing in the waters within 60 miles around the Pribilof Islands. They also provided that the regulations which they had determined upon, with a view to the protection and preservation of the seals, should be submitted every five years to new examination, so as to enable both interested governments to consider whether, in the light of past experience, there was occasion for any modification thereof. The regulations have proved plainly inadequate to accomplish the object of protection and preservation of the fur seals, and for a long time this government has been trying in vain to secure from Great Britain such revision and modification of the regulations as were contemplated and provided for by the award of the Tribunal of Paris. The process of destruction has been accelerated during recent years by the appearance of a number of Japanese vessels engaged in pelagic sealing. As these vessels have not been bound even by the inadequate limitations prescribed by the Tribunal of Paris, they have paid no attention either to the close season or to the 60-mile limit imposed upon the Canadians, and have prosecuted their work up to the very islands themselves. On July 16 and 17, the crews from several Japanese vessels made raids upon the island of St. Paul, and before they were beaten off by the very meager and insufficiently armed guard, they succeeded in killing several hundred seals and carrying off the skins of most of them. Nearly all the seals killed were females, and the work was done with frightful barbarity. Many of the seals appear to have been skinned alive, and many were found half-skinned and still alive. The raids were repelled only by the use of firearms, and five of the raiders were killed, two were wounded, and twelve captured, including the two wounded. Those captured have since been tried and sentenced to imprisonment. An attack of this kind had been wholly unlooked for, but such provision of vessels, arms, and ammunition will now be made that its repetition will not be found profitable. Suitable representations regarding the incident have been made to the government of Japan, and we are assured that all practicable measures will be taken by that country to prevent any recurrence of the outrage. On our part, the guard on the island will be increased and better equipped and organized, and a better revenue cutter patrol service about the islands will be established. Next season, a United States war vessel will also be sent there. We have not relaxed our efforts to secure an agreement with Great Britain for adequate protection of the seal herd, 
and negotiations with Japan for the same purpose are in progress. The laws for the protection of the seals within the jurisdiction of the United States need revision and amendment. Only the islands of St. Paul and St. George are now, in terms, included in the government reservation, and the other islands are also to be included. The landing of aliens as well as citizens upon the islands without a permit from the Department of Commerce and Labor for any purpose, except in case of stress of weather or for water, should be prohibited under adequate penalties. The approach of vessels for the accepted purposes should be regulated. The authority of the government agents on the island should be enlarged, and the chief agent should have the powers of a committing magistrate. The entrance of a vessel into the territorial waters surrounding the islands with intent to take seals should be made a criminal offense and cause of forfeiture. Authority for seizures in such cases should be given, and the presence on any such vessel of seals or seal skins or the paraphernalia for taking them should be made prima facie evidence of such intent. I recommend what legislation is needed to accomplish these ends, and I commend to your attention the report of Mr. Sims of the Department of Commerce and Labor on this subject. In case we are compelled to abandon the hope of making arrangements with other governments to put an end to the hideous cruelty now incident to pelagic sealing, it will be a question for your serious consideration how far we should continue to protect and maintain the seal herd on land with the result of continuing such a practice, and whether it is not better to end the practice by exterminating the herd ourselves in the most humane way possible. In my last message, I advised you that the Emperor of Russia had taken the initiative in bringing about a second peace conference at The Hague. Under the guidance of Russia, the arrangement of the preliminaries for such a conference has been progressing during the past year. Progress has necessarily been slow, owing to the great number of countries to be consulted upon every question that has arisen. It is a matter of satisfaction that all of the American republics have now, for the first time, been invited to join in the proposed conference. The close connection between the subjects to be taken up by the Red Cross Conference held at Geneva last summer and the subjects which naturally would come before the Hague Conference made it apparent that it was desirable to have the work of the Red Cross Conference completed and considered by the different powers before the meeting at The Hague. The Red Cross Conference ended its labors on the 6th of July, and the revised and amended convention, which was signed by the American delegates, will be promptly laid before the Senate. By the special and highly appreciated courtesy of the governments of Russia and the Netherlands, a proposal to call the Hague Conference together at a time which would conflict with the Conference of the American Republics at Rio de Janeiro in August was laid aside. No other date has yet been suggested. 
A tentative program for the conference has been proposed by the government of Russia, and the subjects which it enumerates are undergoing careful examination and consideration in preparation for the conference. It must ever be kept in mind that war is not merely justifiable, but imperative upon honorable men, upon an honorable nation, where peace can only be obtained by the sacrifice of conscientious conviction or of national welfare. Peace is normally a great good, and normally it coincides with righteousness, but it is righteousness and not peace which should bind the conscience of a nation as it should bind the conscience of an individual, and neither a nation nor an individual can surrender conscience to another's keeping. Neither can a nation which is an entity and which does not die as individuals die refrain from taking thought for the interest of the generations that are to come, no less than for the interest of the generation of today, and no public men have a right, whether from short-sightedness, from selfish indifference, or from sentimentality, to sacrifice national interests which are vital in character. A just war is, in the long run, far better for a nation's soul than the most prosperous peace obtained by acquiescence in wrong or injustice. Moreover, though it is criminal for a nation not to prepare for war, so it may escape the dreadful consequences of being defeated in war, yet it must always be remembered that even to be defeated in war may be far better than not to have fought at all. As has been well and finely said, a beaten nation is not necessarily a disgraced nation, but the nation or man is disgraced if the obligation to defend right is shirked. We should as a nation do everything in our power for the cause of honorable peace. It is morally as indefensible for a nation to commit a wrong upon another nation, strong or weak, as for an individual thus to wrong his fellows. We should do all in our power to hasten the day when there shall be peace among the nations, a peace based upon justice and not upon cowardly submission to wrong. We can accomplish a good deal in this direction, but we cannot accomplish everything, and the penalty of attempting to do too much would almost inevitably be to do worse than nothing. For it must be remembered that fantastic extremists are not in reality leaders of the causes which they espouse, but are ordinarily those who do most to hamper the real leaders of the cause and to damage the cause itself. As yet there is no likelihood of establishing any kind of international power of whatever sort which can effectively check wrongdoing. And in these circumstances, it would be both a foolish and an evil thing for a great and free nation to deprive itself of the power to protect its own rights, and even, in exceptional cases, to stand up for the rights of others. Nothing would more promote iniquity, nothing would further defer the reign upon earth of peace and righteousness, than for the free and enlightened peoples which, 
though with much stumbling and many shortcomings, nevertheless strive toward justice, deliberately to render themselves powerless while leaving every despotism and barbarism armed and able to work their wicked will. The chance for the settlement of disputes peacefully by arbitration now depends mainly upon the possession by the nations that mean to do right of sufficient armed strength to make their purpose effective. The United States Navy is the surest guarantor of peace which this country possesses. It is earnestly to be wished that we would profit by the teachings of history in this matter. A strong and wise people will study its own failures no less than its triumphs, for there is wisdom to be learned from the study of both, of the mistake as well as of the success. For this purpose, nothing could be more instructive than a rational study of the War of 1812, as it is told, for instance, by Captain Mahan. There was only one way in which that war could have been avoided. If during the preceding twelve years a navy relatively as strong as that which this country now has had been built up, and an army provided relatively as good as that which the country now has, there never would have been the slightest necessity of fighting the war. And if the necessity had arisen, the war would under such circumstances have ended with our speedy and overwhelming triumph. But our people during those twelve years refused to make any preparations whatever regarding either the army or the navy. They saved a million or two of dollars by so doing, and in mere money paid a hundredfold for each million they thus saved during the three years of war which followed, a war which brought untold suffering upon our people, which at one time threatened the gravest national disaster, and which, in spite of the necessity of waging it, resulted merely in what was, in effect, a drawn battle while the balance of defeat and triumph was almost even. I do not ask that we continue to increase our navy. I ask merely that it be maintained at its present strength, and this can be done only if we replace the obsolete and outworn ships by new and good ones, the equals of any afloat in any navy. To stop building ships for one year means that for that year the Navy goes back instead of forward. The old battleship Texas, for instance, would now be of little service in a stand-up fight with a powerful adversary. The old double-turret monitors have outworn their usefulness. While it was a waste of money to build the modern single-turret monitors, all these ships should be replaced by others and this can be done by a well-settled program of providing for the building each year of at least one first-class battleship equal in size and speed to any that any nation is at the same time building, the armament presumably to consist of as large a number as possible of very heavy guns of one caliber, together with smaller guns to repel torpedo attack while there should be heavy armor, turbine engines, and, in short, every modern device. 
Of course, from time to time, cruisers, colliers, torpedo boat destroyers, or torpedo boats will have to be built also. All this, be it remembered, would not increase our Navy, but would merely keep it at its present strength. Equally, of course, the ships will be absolutely useless if the men aboard them are not so trained that they can get the best possible service out of the formidable but delicate and complicated mechanisms entrusted to their care. The markmanship of our men has so improved during the last five years that I deem it within bounds to say that the Navy is more than twice as efficient, ship for ship, as half a decade ago. The Navy can only attain proper efficiency if enough officers and men are provided. And if these officers and men are given the chance, and required to take advantage of it, to stay continually at sea and to exercise the fleets singly and, above all, in squadron, the exercise to be of every kind and to include unceasing practice at the guns, conducted under conditions that will test marksmanship in time of war. In both the Army and the Navy, there is urgent need that everything possible should be done to maintain the highest standard for the personnel, alike as regards the officers and the enlisted men. I do not believe that in any service there is a finer body of enlisted men and of junior officer than we have in both the Army and the Navy, including the Marine Corps. All possible encouragement to the enlisted men should be given, in pay and otherwise, and everything practicable done to render the service attractive to men of the right type. They should be held to the strictest discharge of their duty, and in them a spirit should be encouraged which demands not the mere performance of duty, but the performance of far more than duty, if it conduces to the honor and the interest of the American nation, and, in return, the amplest consideration should be theirs. West Point and Annapolis already turn out excellent officers. We do not need to have these schools made more scholastic. On the contrary, we should never lose sight of the fact that the aim of each school is to turn out a man who shall be, above everything else, a fighting man. In the Army in particular, it is not necessary that either the cavalry or infantry officer should have special mathematical ability. Probably in both schools, the best part of the education is the high standard of character and of professional morale which it confers. But in both services, there is urgent need for the establishment of a principle of selection, which will eliminate men after a certain age if they cannot be promoted from the subordinate ranks, and which will bring into the higher ranks fewer men, and these at an earlier age. This principle of selection will be objected to by good men of mediocre capacity, who are fitted to do well while young in the lower positions, but who are not fitted to do well when, at an advanced age, they come into positions of command and of great responsibility. But the desire of these men to be promoted to positions which they are not competent to fill 
should not weigh against the interest of the Navy and the country. At present, our men, especially in the Navy, are kept far too long in the junior grades, and then, at much too advanced an age, are put quickly through the senior grades, often not attaining to these senior grades until they are too old to be of real use in them. And if they are of real use, being put through them so quickly that little benefit to the Navy comes from their having been in them at all. The Navy has one great advantage over the Army in the fact that the officers of high rank are actually trained in the continual performance of their duties, that is, in the management of the battleships and armored cruisers gathered into fleets. This is not true of the Army officers, who rarely have corresponding chances to exercise command over troops under service conditions. The conduct of the Spanish War showed the lamentable loss of life, the useless extravagance, and the inefficiency certain to result if, during peace, the high officials of the War and Navy Departments are praised and rewarded only if they save money at no matter what cost to the efficiency of the service, and if the higher officers are given no chance whatever to exercise and practice command. For years prior to the Spanish War, the secretaries of war were praised chiefly if they practiced economy, which economy, especially in connection with the quartermaster, commissary, and medical departments, was directly responsible for most of the mismanagement that occurred in the war itself. And parenthetically, be it observed that the very people who clamored for the misdirected economy in the first place were foremost to denounce the mismanagement, loss, and suffering which were primarily due to this same misdirected economy and to the lack of preparation it involved. There should soon be an increase in the number of men for our coast defenses. These men should be of the right type and properly trained, and there should therefore be an increase of pay for certain skilled grades, especially in the coast artillery. Money should be appropriated to permit troops to be massed in body and exercised in maneuvers, particularly in marching. Such exercise during the summer just past has been of incalculable benefit to the Army and should under no circumstances be discontinued. If on these practice marches and in these maneuvers elderly officers prove unable to bear the strain, they should be retired at once, for the fact is conclusive as to their unfitness for war, that is, for the only purpose because of which they should be allowed to stay in the service. It is a real misfortune to have scores of small company or regimental posts scattered throughout the country. The army should be gathered in a few brigade or division posts, and the generals should be practiced in handling the men in masses. Neglect to provide for all of this means to incur the risk of future disaster and disgrace. The readiness and efficiency of both the Army and Navy in dealing with the recent sudden crisis in Cuba 
illustrate afresh their value to the nation. This readiness and efficiency would have been very much less had it not been for the existence of the general staff in the Army and the general board in the Navy. Both are essential to the proper development and use of our military forces afloat and ashore. The troops that were sent to Cuba were handled flawlessly. It was the swiftest mobilization and dispatch of troops overseas ever accomplished by our government. The expedition landed completely equipped and ready for immediate service, several of its organizations hardly remaining in Havana overnight before splitting up into detachments and going to their several posts. It was a fine demonstration of the value and efficiency of the general staff. Similarly, it was owing in large part to the general board that the Navy was able at the outset to meet the Cuban crisis with such instant efficiency, ship after ship appearing on the shortest notice at any threatened point, while the Marine Corps in particular performed indispensable service. The Army and Navy War Colleges are of incalculable value to the two services and they cooperate with constantly increasing efficiency and importance. The Congress has most wisely provided for a national board for the promotion of rifle practice. Excellent results have already come from this law, but it does not go far enough. Our regular army is so small that in any great war we should have to trust mainly to volunteers, and in such event, these volunteers should already know how to shoot, for if a soldier has the fighting edge and ability to take care of himself in the open, his efficiency on the line of battle is almost directly proportionate to excellence in marksmanship. We should establish shooting galleries in all the large public and military schools, should maintain national target ranges in different parts of the country, and should in every way encourage the formation of rifle clubs throughout all parts of the land. The Little Republic of Switzerland offers us an excellent example in all matters connected with building up an efficient citizen soldiery. End of section 24